This week takes us to Carrollton, Texas, where the disappearance of two young friends remains unsolved over 30 years later. This is episode 66 of Texas 1031. everyone. This is Hannah. This is Texas 1031. And this is a Texas true crime podcast. In this episode, I will be telling you about the disappearance of Stacy Madison and Susan Smalley from Carrollton, Texas. I know several other podcasts have covered this case, but I don't give a fuck. We're going to do it here. My main source for this episode is the book I bought for researching this case by Sean Sutherland titled This Night Wounds Time. Not the catchiest of titles, but it's a great book. Anyways, let's get into our first case of 2023. So picture it. Carrollton, Texas, 1988. As Newman Smith High School security guards guided Frank Madison to a specific section of parking lot, a deep sense of dread began to fill up inside him. The white 1967 Mustang he had bought for his eldest daughter, Stacy, was nowhere to be found. Now, with close to 48 hours having passed since he or his wife, Ida, had seen their 17-year-old daughter, Frank made his way to the Carrollton Police Department to officially report his daughter missing. A similar sense of dread and urgency was transpiring in the home of Susan Smalley. The 18-year-old hadn't reported home to her mother, Carolyn, either. Initially, Carolyn believed everything would be all right and Stacy and Susan would show up after having partied too hard on a last-minute spring break getaway. But that really wasn't like either of the girls. As Sunday turned to Monday, Carolyn, too, reported her daughter Susan missing after she received word from the Newman Smith High School that the girls had not reported to class that Monday morning. All anyone really knew was that Stacy and Susan had plans on staying the night at Susan's house on the night of Saturday, March 20th, 1988, but neither of the girls returned home and haven't been seen in almost 35 years. Monday, March 21st and Tuesday, March 22nd were filled with phone calls and small search parties. Specifically, Frank Madison, Stacy's father, devised a group to scour the roadways and local haunts in the Carrollton and Dallas area. This group included Stacy's on and off again boyfriend, Jason Lawton. According to friends and family, Jason was a controlling and allegedly abusive boy who coerced Stacy into quitting the school band where she played the French horn, as well as requesting her to quit being a member of the school's baton twirling team. Jason entertained Frank's missing persons mission around town, recalling to Sean Sutherland during an interview that he believed they went and searched around Lake Louisville, but nowhere really near Dallas. Ironically, Dallas, specifically Webb's Chapel and Forest Lane, would hold the first piece of evidence in the case, Stacy's missing Ford Mustang. According to This Night Wounds Time, on March 20th, that Sunday, the owner of a baseball card shop, a baseball card shop, you guys, that, that's what time frame we're dealing with here, in the Webb's Chapel Village Shopping Center, noticed a late 1960s Ford Mustang parked in front of his business. 
The man really didn't think much of it since he had a friend who drove a very similar vehicle and figured it was his. However, when the store owner arrived for work the following day to see the Mustang still parked in front of his store, taking up a prime parking spot, he phoned the friend to see what was going on. Realizing that this Mustang was not the same as his friend's, the man contacted the shopping center's security team, and not long after, the Carrollton police were on the scene examining the car, which had since been listed as stolen. Now, I'm sure you saw this coming and probably already could have guessed, but within hours of the vehicle's discovery, it was turned back over to the custody of Frank and Ida Madison, never having been properly or officially processed. According to Ida's recollections, quote, police called us, told us where it was and to come get it. The police had popped the trunk to look for bodies and told us they had processed the car. Frank realized police had popped the trunk after we got home and he looked in the trunk. Something on the lock was bent or loose or something and and he fixed it. Frank then drove the car home from in front of the card shop. My husband asked police the day the car was found whether it had been checked for prints. Then I asked police about it again the next morning. Needless to say, it never happened. End quote. Speaking of police, when the girls were both reported missing, the case was first assigned to investigators Olin Sapp and David Bach. I think that's how you say Olin, O-H-L-E-N, Forensic Files, and Sapp, S-A-P-P. It might be Sop, but I have to say their last names together in conjunction a lot later. And it sounds like I'm saying Sop and Bach, which is, it just sounds weird and also sounds like Scheinerbach. So we're going to go with Sap, Sap and Bach, okay? Uh, both men were in their late 20s at the time when they received this case, and each had been with CPD for four years and investigators for less than one year. According to Sapp and Bach, this case was presented to them quite poorly. The girls were considered runaways, with one of them being 18 and considered an adult and the other turning 18 in just a few months. Bach is quoted saying, a missing person case is approached much differently than a homicide. An open missing person case doesn't carry the same urgency as an open homicide investigation. In addition to Sapp and Bach, there will be other investigators that took on the girl's case throughout the decades, namely Greg Ward, Gary Fernandez, and John Crawford. I'll be mentioning some of these men within the remainder of the episode. Um, Fun fact, John Crawford, by the way, he actually assisted in the capture of Ernesto Reyes, if that name sounds familiar, Um, the piece of shit who killed Melanie Goodwin. I covered her case in... um, Episode 48 of the podcast back in 2019, if anyone cares. So circling back to the unprocessed car, okay? In 2001, Greg Ward, who I just mentioned, is now a retired deputy chief of the Frisco Police Department, which is actually where I grew up, was first to criticize the investigation back in 1988, stating that, quote, the investigators just didn't process the car. They thought the girls were runaways. I'm not saying they screwed up, but they probably could have handled it better. End quote. Yeah, no shit. According to Ward, it was the late 1980s. Missing people and runaways were unfortunately common, and they weren't going to process every house or vehicle in response to a teenager going off with a friend. On top of that fact, Ward stated that less than 1% of these cases actually ended in foul play. So I get it, but I hate it at the same time. Additionally, Sapp and Bach were the only ones assigned to this case and to the missing juvenile division. They had no other support or resources, so they just weren't set up for success. I, I do I do think it's interesting 
if anyone else thinks this too, or ironic and interesting, how they are using two investigators from the missing juvenile department to investigate what they consider two runaway adults. Isn't that like kind of negating their whole point? If they are adults that ran away, then why are you placing them into the juvenile missing juvenile department's care? That's so annoying. Just like admit what it is, you know? I don't know why law enforcement has to be so cringy sometimes, but here we are. So Sapp and Bach and Ward all agreed that this Mustang presented as normal. There was no disarray. There was nothing missing. The seats were in normal positions and there was no forced entry. They all three believed that the girls parked it there and left with someone else. Despite the condemnation the CPD received closing in on 35 years later, there really isn't much that can be done to excuse or fix the car processing flop of 1988. In an attempt at redemption with the Madison and Smalley families, as well as retaining the public's trust, the Dallas Morning News delivered a breaking news story stating, quote, Police have issued a plea for help in finding two Carrollton High School students who have been missing since Saturday night. Susan Renee Smalley, 18, and Stacey Elizabeth Madison, 17, both seniors at Newman Smith High School, told their parents they were going out on Saturday night and were last seen at about 1.30 a.m. on Sunday by a waiter at a, get this, you guys, this is a flashback, at a, a steak and ale restaurant in Addison where Miss Smalley had worked. The young women's parents and police said that they are concerned because leaving for several days without contacting their parents is out of character for both Miss Smalley and Miss Madison, end quote. The broadcast included a message from Police Lieutenant Dennis Watson, as well as a disclosure that a $1,500 reward was being offered for information leading to the girl's safe return. According again to This Night Wounds Time, within a week, the reward increased to $8,000, and by 1989, just a year after their disappearance, the reward would stand at $10,000. After speaking with friends, family, classmates, and coworkers, resulting in few, if any, leads at all, the Carrollton Police Department decided to devise a reconstruction of sorts of Stacy and Susan's last night together. The police hoped that by creating this inventory of the night the girls were last seen, it could assist in uncovering new witnesses, friends, or places they had previously missed. Since the case file belonging to Stacy and Susan is off limits to everyone that is not law enforcement, author of This Night Wounds Time, Sean Sutherland, puts forward his version of reconstruction based on his interviews with law enforcement and family members. So a synopsis of his reconstruction goes as follows. Although originally scheduled to be an outing of three, Stacy, Susan, and friend Deanna Sinclair, Deanna had to bail on the plans at the last minute. Stacy had begun that Saturday incredibly early as she had taken her SAT in preparation for attending North Texas State University. Following her exam, she met up with Susan at the Prestonwood Shopping Center where Susan's mom Carolyn worked. The three had lunch together before Stacy returned home so her mother Ida could perm her hair during which Susan called Stacy to see what her plans were for the rest of the evening. After their phone conversation, Stacy rinsed her perm solution from her hair and got dressed. Susan arrived later at Stacy's home in her mom's brown Ford Pinto around 5 p.m. Ida called the girls to see where they were and reminded Stacy that even though she was spending the night at Susan's, she still had a curfew of midnight, to which one of the girls joked, how will you even know if we're there? Ida's response being, because you never know when I'll call. 
The two friends caravaned from the Madisons' home to the Smalley's condo. Susan in her mom's Pinto and Stacy in her Mustang. Susan, who was working two jobs to save up for a car of her own, had actually taken her mom, Carolyn, to work that day and spent the rest of the day running errands, having lunch with Stacy, etc. Once she and Stacy left the Madisons' home and arrived at Susan's condo, the two girls went back to the Prestonwood Shopping Center to do some shopping and pick up Carolyn from her shift. So a lot of back and forth and different vehicles, but I think everyone is on the same page. Hopefully, rewind if you're confused. So... While at the mall, Stacy purchased a pair of new shoes before the trio left in Carolyn's car and headed home to the condo. The shoes from the now relatively defunct Lord and Taylor department store, along with Stacy's hot rollers, were found on Susan's bed a day or so after the girls had disappeared. From here, Carolyn was getting ready for a date she had that night, and the girls got ready to go out for a normal Saturday night scouring Forest Lane and all of the usual spots. It is believed the girls could have spent some time at the Gemini Drive-In, which I have totally mentioned on this podcast several times, or a local Arby's restaurant near the main drag where the high schoolers would hang out. However, none of this can be confirmed. At only three points during this Saturday night, police are able to establish the girls' whereabouts around 10 p.m., midnight, and 1 a.m. So first, we have the 10 p.m. time slot, okay? This showed the girls at a friend's apartment in Arlington, Texas. So this is some good old-fashioned detective work right here on Ida's part, okay? In the days following Stacy's disappearance, Ida requested that the Smalley's home phone be checked for long-distance calls. She believed that there was a boy Stacy had been communicating with who lived in Arlington, and Ida was convinced that Stacy may have phoned the boy on Saturday night and possibly even traveled to his apartment. When Ida spoke with the boy, he denied seeing Stacy, but did say Stacy called that night, although he couldn't recall what time. However, after a review of the Smalley's phone calls, it showed that someone from the Smalley residence called the young man around 12.01 a.m. The teen eventually admitted that Stacy and Susan had indeed visited his apartment for a, quote, very short visit, end quote, around 10 p.m. He acknowledged the fact that he had lied to Ida, but he didn't want to get Stacy or Susan in trouble for being out past Stacy's curfew or being at the boys' house since there were also four other male roommates. Rumors surrounding this meetup varied. Some believe it was a romantic connection and others believe the young man to just be a drug dealer that secretly supplied the girls with weed and the occasional booze. This revelation that the honor roll athletes, Susan and Stacy, were also mild party girls was somewhat concerning to the Madison and Smalley families. But if anything, it led to more insight into who the girls were seeing and what the girls were doing that night. According to the young men at the Arlington apartment, the girls didn't stay long as they were headed out to go eat a late dinner at a Chili's restaurant in town. The girls also intimated that they might return to the apartment at a later hour. Meanwhile, in Carrollton, Jason Lawton's shift at McDonald's had him leaving around 10.45 p.m. Stacy had taken Jason to work earlier that day due to his vehicle being either in the shop or actually had been repossessed. His version varies when asked. Anticipating a ride home, Jason waited for around 15 to 30 minutes for Stacy to show up before just walking home and going to bed. 
Around the time Jason is walking home, Stacy and Susan were returning to Susan's condo from Arlington. This we know because at 12.01 a.m., someone within the Smalley home calls the boys' Arlington apartment. I'd assume they're calling to let him know that they actually won't be returning to the apartment like they had mentioned they might be doing. It is believed that the girls were attempting to uphold Stacy's midnight curfew as well and be around the house and wait for Ida to possibly call and check in. The girls obviously leave Susan's condo once more, but to go where, for what reason, and with who is anyone's guess. However, shortly after midnight, according to a clerk at an Addison, Texas 7-Eleven store, two girls matching Stacy and Susan attempt to buy beer. After this possible sighting, at some point between 12.30 a.m. and 1.30 a.m., Stacy and Susan were positively identified as being in the parking lot of the Addison Steak and Ale restaurant where Susan worked as a hostess. This pit stop was allegedly so Susan could stop in and speak with a co-worker she had been trying to date. Based upon the location where Stacy's Mustang was later located, we can assume the girls parked the vehicle at this location with every intention of returning to it. Whatever led them there after the steak and ale meeting is pretty much unknown. It is believed that the girls accepted a ride from some person or persons that were driving another vehicle. We don't know if they were forced or went willingly. We don't know if they knew them or not, but based on the evidence on and in the car, or really the lack thereof, law enforcement holds fast in their assumption that the girls knew the person they left with. There was a semi-credible source claiming to have seen girls matching Stacy and Susan. Um, weirdly enough, watching street races on Emerald Street, I guess you could do that back in 1988, the girls appeared heavily intoxicated and were evidently flashing their breasts at other people there. This account has obviously been thoroughly discredited by family and friends claiming that this was not in the girls' character, but no offense, but they also didn't know that their daughters were smoking weed and drinking and maybe even trying to buy beer underage and staying out after their curfew, you know? The girls that were seen flashing everyone at this street race really could have been anyone. But I think people need to open themselves up to the possibility that these girls could have been doing more than just having a sleepover. I think that that's just kind of a very narrow minded train of thought, but it may just be the way their families want to remember them. So I guess I can I can respect that. There are also many who believe that Stacy and Susan were abducted and sex trafficked. Others believe the girls were taken and had their organs harvested by Dallas biker gangs and Mexican cartel members. Others think that they were part of a satanic sacrifice, while others simply believe they ran off with boys to South Padre Island. One person even called in to police claiming Stacy had murdered Susan in a heated argument and is now on the run. Regardless of anyone's opinion, the Madison and Smalley families each believe their daughters suffered the worst outcome and are no longer alive. In the case of Stacy and Susan, the primary theories are, number one, the girls were abducted completely at random and against their wills by total strangers. Number two, they willingly entered the vehicle of someone known to them who delivered them to what proved to be their final destination. Both theories are technically possible. So as for the stranger scenario, it is highly unlikely, although by no means impossible, that organ harvesters, sex traffickers, or Satanists were involved in the girls' disappearances. 
However, this possibility stands or falls completely on whether it is reasonable to believe that one or more individuals could force two adult women into a vehicle against their wills at the same time on the premier cruise strip in Dallas County at an hour when at the end of spring break, there would still have been a fair amount of both people and traffic about. Considering the chaotic scene that would have likely unfolded if the girls were taken against their will, Forest Lane would probably not have been the ideal spot for a seamless abduction. Instead, the more rational argument is that Stacy and Susan accepted a ride on March 20th from someone they knew or otherwise trusted, and that this person is either responsible for the girls' disappearances or at minimum took them to a location where they were introduced to those individuals who are the guilty parties. Whether those responsible for the girls' disappearances were strangers or friends, both scenarios leave us to continually speculate. So let's do that. My favorite thing, speculate. And don't worry, this is just a preliminary questions and theories. We have a full loaded questions and theories this episode. So let's just get into suspect number one, okay? Um, He's really the only one. This is Jason Lawton. Since Stacy never arrived to pick Jason up and since his car was in the hands of either a mechanic for a broken flywheel or having been repossessed on the night the girls disappeared, Jason reportedly had to walk home from McDonald's after his shift. Can anyone corroborate that? Did police verify this? I don't know. He also claims that his brother can verify this as an alibi. We will get to that later. Police, however, did believe there was motive on his part due to the fact that the relationship between he and Stacy was far from perfect and that Stacy had been at another boy's apartment around the time Jason was actually calling the Madison home, attempting to find out where Stacy was and why she didn't pick him up from work. Stacy had actually given her mother Ida specific instructions to tell Jason if he were to call that she was spending the night with Susan. The theory, at least the Madison family believes, that could have occurred is that Jason, unable to reach Stacy and angry she didn't pick him up, gets a friend or family member to drive him around Forest Lane looking for the girls. Despite Jason confirming that neither he or his brother had access to a vehicle that night, Jason didn't help himself by showing complete disinterest in assisting in the investigation or in passing around missing person flyers. He claimed his disinterest or lack of cooperation was more so to do with him feeling pestered and harassed by the police rather than him not wanting to help. He claimed CPD cost him two jobs, one at McDonald's and the other at Burger King, because they kept coming by his job and questioning him. Interestingly, Sean Sutherland states in his book that on the day that he interviewed former CPD investigator David Bach, one of the first things he told Sean was, quote, the reason I'm here is because you hadn't heard how strong of a suspect Lawton was. He had motive, means, and opportunity, end quote. Jason Lawton had also offered law enforcement another reason to suspect him, and that was an outright confession. The Fort Worth Star-Telegram released an article in 1998 recounting how a decade earlier, Jason Lawton had impulsively confessed to his girlfriend at the time that he had bludgeoned Stacy and Susan and buried their bodies in a local cemetery. According to this article, Jason insisted that his statement was completely half-baked and it was said in the heat of the moment. He knew it was in poor taste and quite dramatic and self-implicating, 
but he claims he had simply grown exasperated with people asking him about Stacy's disappearance and implying he knew something. However, though, the truth is far more complicated. According to investigators Sapp and Bach, not 90 days after Stacy and Susan disappeared, Jason had moved on and was in a new relationship. The new girlfriend, let's um, let's just call her Sarah, okay, was the one he allegedly confessed to, stating that he had picked up the girls on Forest Lane, took them in his car up to a cemetery, hit them in the head with a shovel, and buried their bodies. He told Sarah that they were driving on Highway 121 eastbound and that Neil Lawton, Jason's brother, was his alibi for the night. He then followed up with the fact that he would kill Sarah if she ever told anyone. Well, Sarah immediately went to the police. In 2009, Jason divulged his version of events to Sean Sutherland. What Lawton recalled was that he and Sarah were returning a video to a local rental store when Sarah reportedly asked Lawton if he had been involved in Stacy's and Susan's disappearances. This question, according to Lawton, hurt his feelings and provoked him to then say that he had bludgeoned the girls and dumped their bodies inside the fish hatchery on Highway 121. He stated that he had mentioned the fish hatchery to Sarah because he had once gone there with friends and because it was a location that was out of the way. When pressed for a reason as to why he would do something so asinine as to make such a claim if it were not true, Lawton offered that he wanted Sarah to know what it was like to be afraid, if only for a short while. This, he said, was so that she might understand what his life was like since everyone was now presuming he had something to do with Stacy's and Susan's disappearances. I mean, what incredible boyfriend material. Love, love that. That's great. Everyone loves to be scared. Jason, thanks. So with this new information to ensure they ran down every possible lead and location, Sapp and Bach returned to the location that Sarah had pointed out to them on Highway 121 and Fish Hatchery Road. The two men discovered precisely what Jason Lawton had described, an isolated private cemetery unknown to the general public. In turn, the investigators received permission to search the cemetery. Unfortunately, this search led to nothing. With all of the rumors and speculation swirling without a real result from the cemetery, CPD administered a polygraph test against Jason Lawton. He did pass the examination. In response to his passing score, Ida Madison and Carolyn Smalley had some words to say. Ida believed Jason to be a practiced liar. And Carolyn, piggybacking on Ida's sentiment, agreed, stating, quote, I didn't really know Stacy's boyfriend, but I knew he was a liar right from the beginning. He told police when the girls first disappeared, he didn't know where Susan lived. But I came home one night and he was banging on my front door because Stacy was over, end quote. She also added some fun facts that she heard later, um, some later stories of his violence and his short-temperedness and his affinity for knives and pulling them out on people at parties. So again, super great guy. Regardless, though, since Jason had passed the polygraph test, the Carrollton Police Department was presumably of the opinion that they lacked the legal right and lacked sufficient grounds to continue with any further interrogation of Jason Lawton. 
And with that, police were no longer actively pursuing Jason as a suspect in the disappearances of Stacy and Susan. Subsequently, Jason has moved out of state, married four times, and changed his last name. The end result was that as he did his best to move on with his life, Jason Lawton was all but forgotten by the Carrollton Police Department. However, not everyone forgot. Jason had an ex-mother-in-law call up Ida Madison and the Carrollton Police Department confiding in them that Jason was abusing her daughter, which was his wife at the time. This is good. Jason had married her when she was 17 and he was 24 and claims the wife was actually the violent abuser and dismissed all of the now ex-mother-in-law's claims. Big surprise. According to David Bach, he believes that after all of this time, it's shocking that it's still an open case and still classified as just a missing persons case. He believes a fresh look needs to be taken, and in particular, at Jason Lawton. Olin Sapp agreed, stating that the whole decision to eliminate Jason as a suspect was based on polygraph results, and that Jason Lawton needs to be looked at very, very hard. Olin continues, stating that this idea of eliminating him and then never talking to him again is just absurd. Jason had a motive and opportunity. He was never properly eliminated as a suspect in the case. During an interview with Sean Sutherland, Olin Sapp states, quote, Jason Lawton should bear in mind that there are people on this planet that think the proper person was identified. And there are people on this planet that think he, meaning Jason, did it. And I am one of them. In response, David Bach quickly interjected, stating, I am one of them, too. So before we move on to questions and theories, I wanted to say some final words about Stacy and Susan. These are just some quotes that I found in the book to kind of memorialize them a little. Stacy's youngest sister, Stephanie Madison, who was only six when Stacy went missing, was quoted saying, I actually have very few memories of Stacy. There are a few times I remember us hanging out around the house. Stacy was a great sister. She was always very caring and protective of me. I wish I had more memories of her, more time with her. And some final words about Susan. So we have a friend of uh, Susan and Stacy, uh, Deanna Sinclair, who was mentioned earlier. Uh, she was quoted saying, Susan was perceived as quiet and reserved, a super student. She didn't stand out like the other popular crowds. She was a loving friend with a kind heart. If I needed a ride somewhere, she was there. If I needed to borrow a cool shirt from her, she was happy to do it. She was an unselfish soul. She worked hard, and that didn't leave much time for socializing. But she always made time for a friend. And that is the story of the disappearances of Stacy Madison and Susan Smalley in a nutshell, I guess. The book gave loads more insight into the girls and who they were and about Carrollton in general, but we'd literally be here all day. So let's move on to questions and theories. Number one, my main theory we've already kind of touched on, but I will reiterate, we need to understand that the person from whom Stacy and Susan accepted this ride might not necessarily be the same individual responsible for their deaths, okay? There is no question, however, that the girls were taken somewhere by this person and in a car other than their own. Perhaps it was to an all-night restaurant, a party at a friend's house, a gathering at one of the lakes in the Dallas area or to a remote cemetery near a fish hatchery. 
At the location, provided they were not already in their company, the girls met the person or persons who murdered them. Granted, this mystery driver might not be able to answer the ultimate question regarding what became of the girls, but they might possibly be the missing link in the chain of events that does lead to a resolution. The point is that someone other than Stacy and Susan drove the girls to the unknown destination to which they headed when they left Webb's Chapel Road and Forest Lane on that March night so many years ago. I believe that people known to the girls either know or suspect who this person was. And the fact that they haven't come forward to divulge any information to the police is bullshit. My second question is, what about the other phone calls made from Susan Smalley's house? Did Stacy call up someone else or possibly even Jason after they go home at midnight? That might answer some questions about why they left the condo or who they were going to meet up with. I never saw that question raised, you know, because in, in 1988, if you're going to make plans, you would need to use a landline to do so. And perhaps they can't track local calls back then. It was only long distance. I'm not sure. Again, I never saw that sort of topic discussed, but I think that that's interesting and it might shed some light on what else happened that evening. Um, my next question is, Sean Sutherland, um, he discusses an email um, in the book that he received from an old classmate of the girls. And he explained that this person explained how that the cemetery and the fish hatchery area was a semi well-known and popular spot for teens to actually go to and party at. He also mentioned that Neil Lawton, Jason's brother, wasn't the greatest guy either very similar to his younger brother. So just because this this fish hatchery or cemetery or whatever was unknown to maybe adults or to Sap and Bach doesn't mean the girls weren't unfamiliar with this area. And perhaps this is why they may have ended up there and makes Jason's story all the more terrifyingly believable. My next question is, what if the sightings of the girls were true? What if they wanted to try and get some alcohol from the 7-Eleven, but they were told to leave since they were underage? What if they go to the steak and ale and try and see if they can get someone to buy them booze or to find someone they can at least hang out with that would provide the alcohol so they meet up with the guy from Susan's work that she has a crush on? What if that still doesn't pan out so they call up Jason and Neil and they say they, they can bring them booze and go to party up at the cemetery? What if it all goes wrong and the violent brothers murder and bury the girls? Which leads me to my next question is, why didn't they search harder and longer at the cemetery? Why didn't they bring in dogs or more resources? This was the only lead. There were no other leads. Why not run this one literally into the ground and try and find them? If your biggest suspect to this day claims to have, you know, perpetrated this act there, why give up because there was no disturbed earth or fresh graves or whatever? Like, double fucking check, you know? Like, that's crazy. These girls could be out there. Granted, this guy could be totally lying, but if he's your number one suspect and the old investigators are harping on that fact to the new investigators, then that's just fucking crazy that this cemetery hasn't been torn inside out. But that's just me. Um, I guess my last question would be, 
Does anyone else think it's sus that Jason moved and changed his name? I think that that's a pretty big red flag adding on to the previous statements that I just made about how he is the number one suspect. So anyways, um, I think that this case should have been solved. Um, but unfortunately, in just a month, it will be 35 years that Stacy and Susan remain missing and have never received justice. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Let me know if you have any questions and theories of your own. And I will be back soon with more Texas true crime. I actually have a listener suggested case coming up next. And if anyone is listening, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.